Welcome to Diabetes Deconstructed, a podcast for people interested in learning more about diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Kalyani at Johns Hopkins. We developed this podcast as a companion to our patient guide to diabetes website. If you want a trusted and easy to understand resource for diabetes or to listen to previous podcasts, please visit hopkinsdiabetesinfo.org. On today's podcast, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Daphne Nicely, an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and an expert in diabetic kidney disease. Dr. Nicely is also the physician leader for home therapies at UVA Dialysis. Today, Dr. Nicely will be talking about prevention, risk factors, and staging of chronic kidney disease for diabetes. Welcome, Dr. Nicely. Thank you so much for having me. The area that we're going to be talking about today, kidney disease and diabetes, is always a question that I feel comes up when I see my patients and something that many patients are worried about in terms of complications from diabetes. I wonder if you could start off by talking first about the role of the kidneys in diabetes. Why do we even worry about kidneys when someone has diabetes? Well, the hyperglycemia or that high glucose level that people have just affects the cells in the kidney. And it causes them to change and causes the kidney damage or the scarring. And if you think about kidney disease, there's 37 million people in the U.S. with kidney disease. And the number one cause is diabetes, at least in the developed world. And then after that is high blood pressure and then a scattering of other things. One in three will develop some sort of kidney disease. That's probably close to 12 million or so that might develop kidney disease. That's actually a large portion of my population that I see. What do the kidneys do? Why might they be affected in diabetes? That's a great question. So the kidneys do a lot of things so that they don't just make urine. It's what is in that urine that's important and what they're balancing. I like to say that kidneys kind of do several things. So one, that they do help get rid of water and they help balance the water we need in our body. If you're in the Mojave Desert and you don't have access to water, the kidneys recognize that and you won't make any urine. They hold on to so much water, but you'll make a little bit to get rid of the toxins. Or if you enter some radio contest and drink 10 gallons of water, your, your kidneys recognize, I don't need all of that. And you're in the bathroom all day afterwards. They also are kind of the washing machines in the body. So they get rid of all those toxins, the chemicals, things we take in our body, they get rid of it. They're also kind of balance the acid in our body. They help get rid of it. We naturally make acid and they get rid of that. And then they are the chemists. They balance all the chemistries in the blood. So things like sodium, potassium, chloride, things you see on your labs, the kidneys keep that in balance. And they kind of taste the blood and they figure out how much they need to get rid of and how much they need to hold on to. And then the kidneys also do a few other things that people sometimes forget about. They're important for bone health because they balance our calcium, our phosphorus. And they also are important for vitamin D. They make it into the working form to make those strong bones. They also make a hormone that tells, hey, bone marrow, make red blood cells. And so sometimes people can get anemic if their kidneys aren't working very well. And then they're also important for our blood pressure. They help regulate it. They, they recognize when our blood pressure is low and they'll, oh, I need to hold on to more fluid and more salt to raise my blood pressure. Hey, my blood pressure is high. I need to try and get rid of this. Anytime the kidneys kind of screw up, these kind of go out of whack. And whether it's because of diabetes or something else, they can't do that sort of basic function. And it sounds like they do so many things that I think we often forget about and overall really just make sure I like that analogy of the washing machine, making sure that things are cleaned out and that all the toxins are filtered out of the body. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. 
And I know you talked about high blood pressure and often people with type two diabetes in particular will have high blood pressure. How does that affect the kidneys? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did I have high blood pressure and it affected my kidneys or do I have kidney disease and it's causing me to have high blood pressure? It's kind of both. So what happens is when you get changes within the kidney, whether it's diabetes or something else, then you get scarring in there. And the kidney tries to compensate by revving up their hormone system. These hormones actually make the kidney kind of filter more and by increasing pressures. And so your blood pressures will actually rise because of the scarring within the kidney. And in diabetes in particular, because of the scarring that happens within the kidney and this kind of over filtering that kind of happens early on in kidney disease as a kind of a, the changes that occur, then these hormones really go out of whack. And they try to kind of change how it's filtering within the kidney and it ends up raising the blood pressure. And then you've got the high blood pressure that's going to go affect the kidneys too. It's this vicious cycle. So blood pressure control is really important when you have kidney disease and diabetic kidney disease. That goes along with what we often recommend in practice and focusing on management of cardiovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure and high cholesterol, in addition to the high blood glucose and diabetes. How does high blood glucose affect kidneys? There's a bunch of different mechanisms. We know that the high sugars are actually going to change. There's 2 million filtering units in the kidney. And these are filter the blood and they create the urine. And they're all connected by tubules that kind of coalesce into one big tubule and it comes out to your bladder and you make urine that way. So whenever you have high blood sugars, this sugar actually will change the cells within these individual filtering units. And when they change the cells, this prevents them from filtering just right and getting rid of the toxins the way they should. And actually the first sign is they actually start losing protein in the urine. That's an early sign that they have kidney disease. I like to explain it with the analogy that if you think of these little filters as strainers for pasta and they're broken. <laughs> and so you're losing pasta in the sink when you're filtering. And then if you think about all the hormone changes that happen, well, you're rinsing off the pasta with a fire hose. <laughs> and so you just get more damage to the strainer and more protein loss. And it's just a vicious cycle. The changes that happen in the kidney are from those high sugars and through a bunch of different mechanisms. That's actually a really big area of study where figuring out, well, what are all these different ways that the cells change? These inflammation and these enzymes that happen and get revved up because of these high sugars. And they're looking to see if they can target these individual enzymes and these individual inflammation markers as therapies for kidney disease. And they haven't really panned out that much yet. And it all kind of stems from high, high sugars. So if you really control your sugars from the beginning, maybe you can prevent any of these inflammations and any of these changes that happen. So that's kind of the, the general way it happens in kidney. And I know when we talk about kidney disease, we talk about it often along with other microvascular complications, complications that affect the small blood vessels in the body and for the kidney, the ones that feed the kidney and affect the tubules and the filtration systems, as you mentioned. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the early stages of kidney disease and how it progresses to the later stages. Sometimes people associate kidney disease with dialysis, but that's not the only kind of kidney disease. In fact, that's what's called an end-stage kidney disease. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the stages as well. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So if we think about how many people have kidney disease in the U.S. with a large portion of them having diabetic kidney disease. So there are 37 million people with kidney disease and only about 35 million 
actually, they'll, they'll stay the same. They'll be stable. They don't progress, 35 million. And so it's a small portion that'll progress to having end-stage kidney disease or needing dialysis, full-blown kidney failure. If we think about the progression of diabetic kidney disease, early on, before you ever have any chemistry changes or even any protein in the urine, which is an early marker, then the changes are happening if you have high sugars. And then once those changes start happening within those filtering units, you get these filtering units, they're, they're filtering even more than what they should. So if they're filtering 100%, they're normally, then they're 120 or 140%. And it's that extra filtering, it, you, you would think that that's a bonus, but actually over time, that's wear and tear. That's like the fire hose on the strainer. And that when that happens, then you get damage to those cells even more. And once that happens, you'll start to have small amounts of protein in your urine. That's why as an endocrinologist, you guys check for protein in the urine routinely. You're screening for kidney disease. And whenever you start having a little bit of protein in there, that should be an, an early warning sign to people. Hey, I'm starting to have changes within my kidney. I need to really kind of get on the ball and focus on doing right by my diabetes and doing right by my blood pressure to help it prevent from going any further. And actually the over time, this high filtering and this more proteinuria that you have in the urine, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually you'll actually start having changes in the blood chemistry. The creatinine that we look at on our labs and that GFR that we look at on our labs are gonna to start to change. And so the creatinine, if you think about it, is it comes from muscle and you only pee it out. So when it goes up in the blood, we know the kidneys aren't getting rid of it like they should. So the higher it goes, the worse the kidney function. And not everybody has the same amount of muscle mass. And so creatinine of one in one person means something different than another. They mean different amounts of kidney function. So that's why we have that GFR on your labs. And it's literally how many milliliters per minute of blood the kidney's filtering. And it goes hand in hand with the creatinine. So when the creatinine increases, the GFR is gonna to start to decrease. And that's gonna be your signs that the kidney's not doing well with that plus the protein in the urine. And eventually if, if you don't, change anything, it could continue to progress. Really in some, in type two diabetes particularly, the they can have a rapid progression in their creatinine and, and GFR. It gets worse faster over time if they really don't get on the ball. And even if they could have regression in their amount of protein in their urine, but still they, they might've missed the boat. They started getting on the ball with their diabetes and stuff and it's too late and it's just gonna continue to progress. And so if you think about it, so. If we think about that GFR, about how well our kidneys are filtering, normal aging will probably lose a point a year after the age of 40. But if you have diabetic kidney disease, it's actually going to start going down by even as much as more than three each year because of the diabetes that's affecting the kidneys. And GFR, glomerular mm -hmm. filtration rate, is so important. So when patients look at their labs, the things that they might want to focus on if they're interested in seeing how their kidney is doing is the creatinine, like you said, and the GFR, glomerular filtration rate, and then the protein, the urine microalbumin, which we check once a year. I wonder if um, someone was curious about, do I have kidney disease? What kind of thresholds or numbers should they be looking for in those reports? And if they're told that they have stage two or stage three disease, for instance, what does that mean? That's a, that's a great question. So, so I'll start with the, the GFR. So that's how we stage kidney disease. 
And so for chronic kidney disease, we usually say it's less than 60, unless we know somebody has a lot of protein in the urine or a biopsy of the kidney that shows there's something wrong with the kidney or some sort of imaging that shows us the kidneys aren't perfect. This is just in general for kidney disease. But for stage one chronic kidney disease, it's somebody that has a normal GFR, more than, more than 90 for it. And, but they have one of those changes, a biopsy or tons of protein or blood in their urine or imaging that shows the kidneys aren't perfect. Stage two is when that GFR is from 60 to 90 and they have those other findings as well. And then stage three is if it's less than 60, but more than 30. And we break it down into A and B, which is we split it at the 45 mark. And then if it's 15 to 30, that's stage four. And then stage five is less than 15. And it, the, most people tend to go on dialysis in stage five around when that GFR is about 10, because that's really when they start having the symptoms of kidney failure. You don't have any symptoms before that. And so if you were focusing on your left, so most people have a, a range in their, their creatinine. And I tend to look at creatinine a lot for telling people what their normal is because their muscle mass usually doesn't change that much over time. And so I'll say, oh, your normal creatinine is from one to 1.4, which is a little abnormal. They have kidney disease, but that gives them an idea. And it's never gonna be the exact same during the day. So their creatinine in the morning might be a little different than the evening. So that's why I always tell them there's a range. And it's also gonna fluctuate by what you drink. But typical ranges for creatinine is anything less than 1.2 is considered normal, I guess you'd say. And then for the GFR, like I said, less than 60 is typically what we look at. And that's usually when they're sent to see me about when they're less than 60, but there will be somewhat aging. So 90 year old kidneys are not gonna work the same as when they're 20. Their GFR might be when they're 90, they had perfect kidneys, but it might be 70. <laughs> that's just normal aging that happens over time. So I wouldn't focus on a specific number, but less than 60 is kind of where you would cut off. As far as the, the protein in the urine, there's different ways of checking it. So there's the, what you guys do is that microalbumin, or it's, a, it's technically a, a urine albumin to creatinine ratio. And normal is less than 30. I mean, normal, you really shouldn't have any albumin in your urine, but we, we don't really count it unless it's above 30. And then we kind of stage it as well. 30 to, to 300, we say it's kind of moderately increased. And if it's above 300, it's, it's severely increased. And then if it's 3000 milligrams or more, it's, it's more concerning when it's in the thousands. We really worry about that because it's going to add to the prognosis. The more protein you're losing in the urine, the more damage that's going on in the kidney and the worse the kidneys could go over time. And then you could also do a 24 hour urine on people. I don't tend to do those a lot anymore. Sometimes I do if I'm really questioning the amount of protein in the urine, but they're cumbersome. You have to catch every, every drop of urine through 24 hour period. You have to wonder, well, am I supposed to catch the morning urine or do I dump it out? It's always collected wrong, even in the hospital. So I don't do those very often unless I'm, I'm going to change some sort of management or something like that. And you can do those for albumin or total protein in the urine. And we can also do a, a urine protein to creatinine ratio similar to, similar to the albumin, because albumin is a type of protein, but albumin is more specific. And the, the testing for albumin in the urine is more kind of similar through institutions versus there's a lot of variation with when you do protein in general in the urine. And there's a bunch of other proteins that we lose in the urine too. So I don't, 
I might check that once whenever I see someone, but for the most part, I always do urine albumin. And the cutoffs for the urine protein creatinine ratio are usually kind of similar to the albumin. So in albumin, it was 30 or less is kind of normal. And then, but for protein, it's 150 or less. And then 150 to 500 is moderately increased. And more than 500 is that severely increased is what we say. So that's really interesting to hear about the different stages of chronic kidney disease. And it seems like the higher the number, the more severe the disease. And so if an individual is interested in knowing where they lie, it's it's really helpful to hear about the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate in the urine, microalbumin or protein to ensure that those are being checked at least annually, if not for the GFR, maybe even three to, every three to six months, depending on the medicines they're on. One of the questions that will come up is what about your diet? If you have a lot of protein in your diet, you just finished talking about having protein in your urine. Is that a good thing or is that something you would discourage? I think I spend probably the majority of my visits talking about nutrition (laughs) because your diet does affect the kidneys. It's never going to, some people hope that by changing their diet, they'll reverse what's already happened in the kidney. And that's not going to necessarily be the case, but it's definitely a therapy for the kidneys is the way I would put it. It's part of the treatment plan. So talking about protein. So protein is really important in your nutrition. You want to get an adequate amount of protein, but you don't want to overeat protein because if you overeat protein, then your kidneys are going to try and get rid of it. And it actually is, is bad for the kidneys. If I was like a bodybuilder which I'm not, but if I was like, when I was drinking muscle milk, in addition to eating three meals, and I was doing so much extra protein to try and bulk up, I'm doing way too much protein. And I'm probably going to cause some damage to my kidneys by doing that. But I tell people that you want a normal amount, which the best way to think about of an, a normal amount is a serving of protein at each meal. That's all. And for women, it's the palm of your hand. For guys, it's a deck of cards because their hands are usually a little larger but it's pretty much palm of your hand or a deck of cards. And that could be equal to two eggs for women or three eggs for men. And the, that serving amount is for any land meats, your pork, chicken, beef, lamb, goat, all of those. And then if you're talking about seafood, the protein's kind of made different. And so a serving of protein for seafood is about the size of a remote control, or I would say an iPhone, that size. We'll bring it up to modern times an iPhone, (laughs) maybe a Samsung Galaxy. I don't know. (laughs) It might be a little big, but that's, that's for seafoods, shrimp, fish. So you can do protein at each meal. And then there are vegetable-based proteins, which which count as well too. If you're one of those real kind of anal people that want a number, then whatever your weight is in kilograms, that's how many grams in a day you can have. So if I'm 70 kilograms, if that's my weight, then, which is about 150 pounds, but if I'm 70 kilograms, that's, I can have 70 grams of protein a day if I wanted to add it up. So, and because Greek yogurt has protein, black beans have protein, and and there might be, there's some newer data out there that says vegetable-based proteins might be a little better for you if you have kidney disease in general, but I'm not, the data is not strong enough that I'm recommending all of my my kidney disease patients to be vegan, but, but maybe there's a benefit with doing a vegetable protein night for dinner or something like that. And then the big thing that people really need to do if they have diabetic kidney disease or kidney disease in general is a low sodium diet, whether you have high blood pressure or not, a low sodium diet is very important because that the high amount of sodium that kidneys are going to have to get rid of it. And it just adds more pressure on the kidneys to get rid of that sodium and more wear and tear and stress 
and it can make the kidney disease get worse. I usually tell people less than 2,000 milligrams of sodium a day. I think it's a teaspoon and a half, teaspoon and a quarter of salt is equivalent to that. And if you're really eating at home, cooking your own food, making everything from scratch, not using canned sauces or stuff like that, then you're probably less than 2,000 milligrams a day in your sodium intake. But if you're eating out a lot, if you're using a lot of deli meat or hot dogs or TV dinners or what have you, you're way over 2,000 milligrams. A normal American diet, if I just ate whatever I wanted, is 6,000, 8,000 milligrams of sodium a day, which is way too much. And so this high sodium also is going to have other problems. Even someone with a, a normal kidney function, if I went out and ate 10 bags of Utz chips, I would, I would have a little swelling in my legs just for a day or two because my kidneys have to catch up to all that salt to get rid of it. And I like to say salt and water are best friends. So expect to swell a little bit if you have something salty because it's going to retain water. There's other dietary changes that people may or may not have to make. Sometimes in in kidney disease, especially diabetic kidney disease, they might have problems getting rid of potassium in, in their body just because of kind of some of the damage that happens to the kidney. And so they might have to restrict potassium in their diet. And it's not because the potassium is causing damage to their kidney. It's just their kidneys can't get rid of it. And so we're helping the kidneys out by restricting it in our diet. But not everyone needs to do that. It's really based on their labs. So if their potassium is normal, they don't need to. And so if they have to restrict potassium in their diet, it's, it's all about moderation. It's not that you have to get rid of everything with potassium. It's about, well, don't overeat potassium. So if they're doing like big ones are oranges, potatoes, tomatoes, bananas. And so if they're eating oranges every day, cut back to a couple times a week. Or if they're doing banana with their cereal every morning, then maybe do it only a couple mornings a week and do blueberries instead or low potassium. And so, and so over time, we, we try to restrict phosphorus in the diet or give people pills to help with that. And that's only if their phosphorus is high again. That's usually in the later stages of kidney disease when they're getting close to needing dialysis that we do that. So with phosphorus containing foods, big ones are like, um, it's in a lot of processed foods. It's a preservative. So some junk foods have a lot of phosphorus in them. Chocolate does. And that, that's usually inorganic phosphorus. So you actually absorb that really easily versus kind of phosphorus in meats and dairy products, it's organic. You still absorb it. It's just not as easily absorbed. And so I tend to restrict people's kind of junk food <laughs> where it's preservatives first before I start restricting their meats and their dairy products because those are somewhat nutritious for them. And then if, it, if they begin to not have anything to eat, I'll give them <laughs> binders as well. Nutrition is a huge part of kidney disease and diabetes. And they're already having to control their their carbs in their diet for their diabetes. And then, well, they, they should probably be on a low sodium diet too if they have high blood pressure or they start to have kidney disease. And then if they start having high potassiums and phosphorus, they run out of stuff to eat. <laughs> I really value a nutritionist or a dietitian to meet with patients. And it, you want to meet with them early on. And with diabetes, you guys usually have access to a nutritionist in your clinic and they're easily, we can visit them. And sometimes if they just have kidney disease, it's sometimes hard to get them into a nutritionist and having insurance pay for it. it depends on what stage they are, but they're really valuable, I think. And nutritionists nowadays are not just telling you what you cannot eat. <laughs> That's what they used to be like. You can't eat this, can't eat this, can't eat this. They're really good about saying, well, you can't eat this, but what do you like to eat? Oh, you can eat more of those, or you can eat more of this. <laughs> They've turned around to be positive and not all negative. 
Yeah, I agree. Having a nutritionist as part of the comprehensive care team is so important, especially if you have diabetic kidney disease, that it's another layer of nutritional modification, as you mentioned, for protein and sodium, and then in the later stages for potassium and phosphorus. So the dietary modifications are so important and so key at every stage of kidney disease. This has been so interesting and so informative, Dr. Nicely, to hear about how you approach your patients with diabetic kidney disease and the relationship between diabetes and kidneys, which is so important to remember for healthcare providers, but also for patients who are worried about the complications of this chronic disease. Thank you so much for being here today. We truly appreciate all your expert input and advice. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Dr. Rita Kalyani, and you've been listening to Diabetes Deconstructed, a companion podcast to the Johns Hopkins Patient Guide to Diabetes website, which also has useful information about diabetes, including videos and animations, a lifestyle and nutrition blog, and a comprehensive diabetes glossary, among many other things. For more information, visit hopkinsdiabetesinfo.org. We love to hear from our listeners. The email address is hopkinsdiabetesinfo at jhmi.edu. Thanks for listening, be well, and see you next time.